everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? All right. He is risen. Yes, he has. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm so glad that you took time out of your weekend to join us to worship our Lord today. And um, I, I just, Easter's the bomb. I love Easter. It's, it, uh, I love Easter for several reasons. One is that on an Easter Sunday, I walked into a church um, to make fun of Christians who were so weak they needed a God. And I left realizing I was the one that was weak and surrendered to God. So, it was an amazing day for me. And so Easter for me is always a reminder of where we are and where we hope to be one day. I have to admit that by Easter 2023, I honestly thought we'd be raptured by now. I'm just going to throw that out there. I really did. I, I, I thought we would long be gone. I didn't think God would let us actually wander this far off the path. I thought he would have to come back to save us from ourselves. Now, I know that on an Easter Sunday, many people want upbeat, uplifting sermons and butterflies and lilies and stuff, and we're going to get there. <laughs> Maybe. Easter really means almost nothing unless you look at it in light of a clear understanding of where we are with God today. Spiritual status of the church on this Easter of 2023 is gravely critical. We've had very little influence on our culture and we're losing our voice of reason for the people. Do you ever just get sick of it? I mean, disgusted with the way man lives, offended for God, offended for yourself. You look at the blatant disregard for God and you wonder why. Why has he not wiped out everyone yet? Surely we can't be better than Sodom. I mean, look around. Look at what's happening in our world. I can't speak for everybody else, but I'm at the point where I almost can't stand to watch the news or read the newspaper or watch TV that has commercials on it. Everywhere I go, everything I see seems to be blatant insults to God and those who follow him. I'd like to tell you on this beautiful Easter morning that we live in a wonderful place. But we don't. Most people I encounter on a daily basis hate the God that I worship. It's not that they're uncomfortable, they're actively hostile. They become more and more bold in their rejection of him, and as a result, their rejection of me. I used to love rainbows. I'd see them across the sky after a storm and remember that God's watching over me. I saw them as a symbol of his promise, and now they make me nauseous. I can't stand to look at it. It's so offensive to God that it infuriates me to see a rainbow anywhere. People are now openly mocking prayer or any faith or belief in God. They say things about my Savior that make me literally want to explode on them. They mock the Holy Scriptures, they mock the church, and anyone who mentions Jesus. I think in our society, we're as far from God as we've ever been. We have no fear of God anymore. Sin is no longer offensive to us. We no longer value freedom, and oddly, we have rejected diversity in the name of diversity. We've incited racism in the name of racial equality. 
we're expected not to just tolerate anything, but to approve of it as well. Relationships that God calls perversions, we're supposed to support as the norm and even teach it to our children. We're passing laws that encourage people to kill babies in the womb or to sexually mutilate them when they're older. We have total disregard for life, for the order that God placed in it. We're doing everything possible to destroy every authoritative relationship in our society. They try to remove parents from raising their children, police from maintaining peace, churches from ministering judges, from judging nations, from defining borders, people from defending themselves, and laws from reasonable enforcement. Our society's collapsing. We're morally bankrupt, and common human decency values no longer have any meaning. I don't think God could bless America. It's far too out of character for him. In fact, if God does not bring his judgment and wrath against America, it'll be the first time a society has blatantly offended him and not been destroyed. I don't think God can remain righteous and just without clearly punishing us for our sins. America is stockpiling the wrath of God, and he will not leave us unpunished. He didn't let the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, or the Romans escape his wrath, and neither will we. Sin is running rampant in America this Easter Sunday. I never expected society to fall this quickly. I never dreamed that I would see in my lifetime the complete moral, social, and structural collapse of society, yet I think we're closely there. Most will not be in churches this Easter Sunday. Most do not care that Jesus resurrected. All that they care about is that we care, and they want us to stop. Not stop caring, stop living. They hate Jesus, and they hate us, just as he said. Hmm. In my opinion, it's no longer a question of if America survives, but rather how long before it doesn't. We're almost to the end of Book of Revelation, and we've talked about many nations who will play a role in the end times, just not ours. There appears to be no mention of a great Western power coming to protect or help Israel in the end times. You can find Europe, European Union, probably the United Nations. We see China, Russia, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, Turkey, all the nations of, Israel, of Europe, and they're all easily identified in end times prophecy. There's no mention of the United States or a great Western power. And yet we all know we're in the end times. Many worship our nation and our military. That's where they put their faith. That's where they find their security. But patriotism can be a false idol. Many act as though God is required to protect America no matter what we do. Like somehow this experiment of a republic that lasted less than 300 years can't be judged by God and destroyed by his wrath. We act as though God needs us and owes us even if we don't seem to need him. I know you were thinking this sermon's going to be upbeat. It's going to be hopeful. It's full of lilies and birds. Well, we aren't done yet. Maybe there's still hope. Hmm. That's the state of where we are. Think about how things used to be. 
the moral standard of the 1940s and 50s. It's horrible to be something that you believed in unravel before your eyes. To see the way you thought things would always be suddenly not be. To know that your memories of the way things were will only be those, memories. Things will never be the same again. You can hope for their return, but deep down you know all you can do is be grateful that you got to experience something different, something better, and thank God for the gift of memory and where we are now. It's catastrophic to see all that you hope for and believe in get shattered and destroyed. It's actually hard to keep going. Hold on to the last drop of hope that remains in you to have a glimpse of not only what could be and then to see that shattered. You find yourself wanting a chance to start over again. If we could just start over, uh, reboot the operating system, kill the virus that caused all this stuff. That's where the disciples were on that first Easter Sunday morning, wondering what became of what was, trying to understand what God is doing and what will be. They were shattered. They'd spent every moment for three years with the most incredible human being they'd ever encountered. They had a deep relationship with him. They were sure he was the promised one, the Messiah. But they came to realize something deeper about him. They began to understand that he was God. They placed their faith in him. They gave up everything for him. They had great plans of a future with him, a kingdom that would bring out and bring them out of the cesspool of sin that had become rampant in the Roman Empire. The Jewish people were under persecution. Their religious ways were being challenged. The Romans tried to limit their worship, their access to the temple, and their very way of life. The Roman morals were failing at a Caligula pace, and the Jews tried desperately to hold on to God's way of life. The Romans had no respect for the God of Israel. They tolerated the Jews, but just barely. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob meant nothing to them. His morals, his laws, his sacrifices, his holy days, they were nuances to the Romans. Just when it seemed there was no hope for the Jews under the Roman Empire, he came, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, who promised to establish the Jewish kingdom and restore all that was lost with God. He was here. Disciples and followers of Jesus were so sure that he was the Messiah. On Palm Sunday, they sang messianic hymns and they welcomed him home to Jerusalem. A few days later, they argued over who would be greatest in this kingdom that's about to happen. They celebrated the Passover Seder with him and they, he seemed distraught or, or focused in the garden, but they thought it was just because he was preparing to lead the Jewish empire back to greatness like in David's time. When the guards came to him in the garden, they thought it was on. Time for victory. Peter pulls out an ear splitting and Jesus tells him to stop. Their Savior, Messiah, God, incredibly seemed defeated. He didn't even fight. He wouldn't let them fight for him. He, he let these pagan Romans drag him away. The rest of Passover was a blur for them. A horrible nightmare. He was tortured and hung on a tree and the, the lowest of the low, and now he's dead. People were mocking him and mocking them. How could they have been so foolish? 
They lost everything on Friday. All their hopes, all their plans, all their promises of God's coming kingdom, the freedom Jesus promised, now he was gone and they were, they were well, still here. Stuck in a world that hates the Messiah and hates them. Honestly, watching all the wonderful things they thought they knew just go away in an instant left them questioning God. Okay, maybe even doubting what they thought was true about God. Jesus had been the miracle worker. Dead people rose, blind people could see. The lame could not just walk, they danced. He calmed storms with just a word. Some saw him literally glowing with the glory of God on a mountaintop. The one place they thought they never would see him was dead in a tomb. And yet that's exactly where they had to leave him. They must have wondered, what, what are we supposed to do now? Peter himself told Jesus where we're going to go. You have eternal life. We can't leave you. Jesus said, do you want to leave too? And Peter goes, where are we going to go? Your eternal life. We're with you forever. You're Emmanuel. You're God with us. They must have wondered, we didn't leave you. How, how could you leave us? What does it mean when God with us is no longer with us? That's where they were Sunday morning. That's where I feel like we are sometimes. What you know is possible seems no longer possible. The, the, the world that you knew is no longer the world you're in. Change almost seems too far away. There was a time when America seemed to ride the wind of God's blessings. We've seen God's blessings throughout our nation's very short history, so much so that we took it for granted, took him for granted, and as a nation, replaced the truth of God with a lie. Like the disciples, we too are wondering, what does it mean when God with us seems distant to our culture? The promises seem too far away. We're in the mess right now. What happens when God's blessings are replaced with his wrath? When those who still believe still have to live in a society that doesn't? What are we supposed to hold on to when our world is shattered, our future is uncertain, and our hopes are hanging by a thread? The world turns against us and God seems totally irrelevant to them. Three words. Just three words. It's all you have to know. Three words that changed the entire world. Three words that bring everything back into alignment. Three words that make everything right again. He has risen. These words cover everything. We cling to these words with every ounce of hope that we have. In fact, those three words are the foundation of our faith. Your salvation rides on what you believe about those three words. Imagine when the women at the tomb heard those words for the very first time. Matthew 5, 28, 4. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he has risen. Three words immediately make everything right. He has risen. Now everything's elevated again. Our hopes, our dreams, our future, they all rise with him. 
When the tomb could not hold him, he stepped into our darkness and changed everything forever. He has risen. For those whose faith has been wavering, these three words change it all. No matter what happened to the disciples, no matter what happens to us, we know the only thing we absolutely have to know, he has risen. Do whatever you want to do to me, I'm eternal. Do whatever you want to do to me, my God's only going to allow what's best. Take my life, shame me, torture me, take my rights, make me walk around moral dung everywhere I go. Dare God to bring his wrath back. Do anything else your debased minds can think of. I just have one thing to say. He has risen. Because he has risen, I believe in faith. My citizenship is no longer here. My future is brighter than my past. My hope is stronger than my fears. My short history is just a blip on an eternal story. You see, because he's risen, so have I. I've risen above the temporary concerns of this world. I've risen above the judgment of other people. I've risen above the guilt and shame of my past. I've risen above the attitudes and supposed truths of this world. I've risen above any disease, illness, or injury that wants to come up against me. My citizenship is no longer here. My future is brighter than my past. When Jesus stepped out of the tomb that Easter Sunday morning, he showed all of us the way home. Death had no hold on him, and he returned victoriously. In that historical moment, everything changed. So have I. When Jesus claimed citizenship in heaven for all of eternity, so have I. When Jesus left the worries of the world behind, so have I. When Jesus longed for the day he would return to us, so have I. When Jesus longed for the day that everything would be new again, so have I. When Jesus desired God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, so have I. When Jesus said all authority is his, so I agree. Because he's risen, all his promises are true, and my faith in him make me a child of the living God. Because he has risen, the world is no longer my home. When Jesus left his linens with the angels in the tomb, when he proved he was God, he sealed every promise ever made about him for all time. He walked out of that tomb to set things right to lead a spiritual revolution, to lead a spiritual battle, a victory won but not yet fully experienced by us, a day in the future on our calendar where evil is defeated and destroyed and everything tainted by sins, unrepentant sinners, all of creation, everything we've ever seen is justly destroyed and on that wonderful day, everything becomes new. That's what John wanted to show us in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, out of heaven from, for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Notice that this new Jerusalem was built in heaven and brought down. It didn't originate from earth. Note the angel says it's as if God had prepared his bride. Nothing is more spectacular for a groom than to see his bride waiting for him at the altar. Ancient Greek word here translated new means new in character, completely fresh. A new heaven and a new earth. It's not just a remade heaven and earth, it's brand new. Jesus said the same. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Isaiah 65, 17, God prophetically said that he'll create a new heaven and a new earth, and the word for create meant to create out of nothing. Tabernacle of God is with man. He'll dwell with them. When Moses wandered through the wilderness, they built a tabernacle, a place for God to dwell. He was going to be their people. They were going to be his God. I mean, they were going to be his God. He was going to be their God. They were going to be his people. From the very beginning, it states the essence of God's desire and man's purpose. God desires to live in close fellowship with us, and we're to be a people unto God. The promise of the Old Testament fulfilled, Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Aren't you glad about that? Be glad, there, there it is, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. Psalmist said, of you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants, that's us, shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Peter said it this way, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and all the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. New Jerusalem is distinguished for what it doesn't have. No tears, no sorrow, no death, and no pain. Later, it'll be shown that the new Jerusalem has no temple, no sacrifice, no sun, no moon, no darkness, no sin, and no abominations. What it declares is the absence of anything to be sorry about. No sadness, no disappointment, no pain. There'll be no tears of misfortune, no tears over lost love, 
No tears of remorse, tears of regret, tears of death over loved ones, or tears for any other reason. People who thirst will only thirst not for water from the sea, it is no more. They'll thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, Jesus said. In this chapter, we see that the history of time is finished and the history of eternity is beginning. It's one of the few times in Revelation where we clearly see God speaking directly from the throne. Behold, I make all things new. That statement is in present tense. I'm making all things new. It's the work of his renewal and redemption. When God finally completes the work of making all things new, they will stay new. Everything will stay new. Nothing will wear out. Nothing will decay. No one will age. There won't be any atrophy of anything anymore. I'm making all things new. The world, the holy city, you, everyone and everything you see, it's all new, God says. Not just upgraded, brand new. Newly created and being created, the same sure hands that crafted the world that we now live in is going to craft the world to come. Everything that you know or have seen, the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, every planet, every star, the jungles, they'll all be a very short memory, and then they won't be a memory at all. We'll literally see them destroyed, and we'll see the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the bookend. From the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And now God from the throne says, it is done. Jesus finalized it with, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. It is finished. The price for your sins was paid at the cross, and what God said promised would come has now come. Everything is new, including you. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the promise. One day I'm going to make everything new, and it's all going to be reunited under me. His kingdom has come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through the centuries, the desire to see God and to be in his presence and enjoy him forever, that longing that nothing fulfills defines believers of Christ. We all long for something we don't yet have. So what happens when we truly realize that he has risen? Well, we're lifted up. 
We're lifted up above our current circumstances and problems. Our focus is no longer on what's wrong with the world, but rather we become focused on what's right with heaven. We're reminded that he is risen. Three things happen that change everything. First, we lift our eyes above our circumstances and we look to the future and heaven. Second, we thirst for righteousness. And third, our hope is restored. Three outcomes from three very simple words. He is risen. First, you shift your focus to heaven. As soon as you start thinking about the fact that he is risen, your mind moves from here to there. You realize he's risen. You know in the core of your being that your home is heaven and not here. That truth is what elevates your focus, brings hope. Every time you hear his reason, his risen, you should think, and I'm going to heaven. When we're reminded that he is risen, we focus on heaven. Sadly, that is not true for many churches today. Caught up in society's rush for instant gratification, material comfort, narcissistic indulgements, and growing numbers, the church has become worldly. Nothing more graphically demonstrates that than the lack of interest, it seems, in heaven. Church doesn't seem to sing much, preach much, or talk much about heaven. Believers really don't discuss it much. Songs are no longer written about it, and books about heaven are actually very few and far between. Believers who do not have heaven on their minds trivialize their lives Hinder the power of the church and become absorbed with fading things of the world the Bible makes it clear that believers are supposed to be focused on heaven in Philippians 3:20, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Paul told the Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, think the th seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. What are we to do when the world looks crazy? Get our mind off this world and look at what we're doing. James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes him an enemy of God. John 1, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. And the world's passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Why are we uncomfortable in the world we're in today? Because we're not supposed to be. A heavenly perspective is vital for us. It's where our destiny is. Scriptures confirm it's where the Father is. It's where the Savior is. It's where the Comforter, the Spirit is. All fellow believers who have successfully run their earthly races are there. Believers' names are recorded in heaven. They are citizens of heaven. Their inheritance is there. And their reward and treasure are there. Have you ever run into somebody that's about to go on vacation? That's all they can talk about? 
and everybody in the world knows that they're going to that place on that day? People should be hearing that from us about heaven. I can't wait to get there. You're not going to believe what they have there. I can't wait. Desiring heaven exerts a powerful influence on every believer's life while they're still on this planet. In the first letter, John described one of the reasons Christians desire heaven. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Believers will receive glorified bodies similar to Christ's resurrected body in which they will see him just as he is. And then John gives the practical effect of that knowledge. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Focusing on heaven changes everything. Longing for heaven confirms that you are saved for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. A genuine and strong longing for heaven produces the highest Christian character. Spending time meditating on heavenly things, you can't help but have your life transformed. If you spend your day thinking about heavenly things, you're going to change. Thinking about heaven brings joy and comfort during trials and pain. Those who focus on heaven's glory can endure anything in this life and not lose their joy. When they suffer, they can say like Paul, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. A genuine, strong longing for heaven protects us from sin. If you're truly focused on heaven, it's hard to decide to sin. Paul told the Romans, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But to those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. A genuine and strong longing for heaven gives you a heart to serve other people. Those focused on earth let the things of the earth draw them away from their mission. They don't serve others, they begin to serve themselves and what the world can give them. They foolishly think that the reward of pursuing earthly things is greater than the reward of pursuing heavenly things. And finally, a genuine strong longing for heaven honors God above everything else in your life. Those who focus on heaven focus on the supreme one who's in heaven. Three words, he has risen. Takes you to your focus on heaven. It also makes you aware of something else. The second thing that he has risen does for us is it makes us thirst for righteousness. When you realize that he's risen, you look beyond the fallen world you live in and you thirst for righteousness. That, that's what I realized I've been struggling with. I've been thirsting for righteousness. The reason I'm so disappointed this Easter is because I'm longing for the days of my youth. I, I, I thirst for righteousness. When I look at the world we live in, it's righteousness that I'm missing. I'm panting for it through the news, through the world, like a man in a desert asking, is there anything to drink here? Show me some sign of righteousness in what I see in our world. I'm dying to drink from the spring of life. 
to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. The water I give him will become in him a well springing up to eternal life. It's the water of which he spoke to John. He said, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The same promise is repeated. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who's thirsty, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Water in these passages symbolizes eternal life in the Holy Spirit. Those who thirst and passionately seek salvation are the ones who receive it. So what defines the inhabitants of heaven? What, what determines who's there and who's not? Well, the scriptures tell us that the citizen of heavenship is described as one who thirsts. That phrase signifies those who recognize their desperate spiritual need, their distance from God, and they hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are the ones to whom Isaiah cried out, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, bury and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Those who are redeemed enter heaven with a thirst for righteousness that finally gets quenched. The psalmist says, as a deer pants for the water brooks, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? God will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. The water symbolizes eternal life. Those who thirst for and passionately seek salvation are going to receive the eternal bliss of heaven. He has risen, reminds us that we need to lift our thoughts off of this world and onto heaven, and we need to be thirsting for his righteousness to come true. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need your righteousness. What's driving you when you get nauseated looking at our world is your thirst for righteousness. But then something else happens when we realize he has risen. Hope springs eternal, literally. I think the worst emotion that people can have is a loss of hope. We can persevere through almost anything as long as we have some form of hope on our horizon. In order to get through tough times, we just need to know that our troubles are temporary and one day, one day, things will get better. It's easy to look around our world and see all that's wrong. Easy to see how many people are completely rejecting God and all that he's done. It's easy to be offended for God. Easy to be ashamed of what man has become. But I found the answer to my despair in the scriptures. No matter what happens in my life, I can hold on to three words. He is risen. The world wants to celebrate what God calls perversions. He is risen. The world wants to destroy human life in the womb. He has risen. People try to redefine and reassign what God has created male and female. He has risen. People try to silence the truth of God. He is risen. People deny God and mock Jesus. He's still risen. People torture and kill believers. He's risen. 
People want to outlaw prayer, he has risen. People try to tell you what you can and can't believe, he has risen. No matter what people in our world do, they cannot change the fact that he has risen. You can handle anything if you know to your core that he has risen. The only thing that puts hope on our horizon is the very real truth that on a very real day in Jerusalem, he rose. And because of our faith in that truth, one day, one incredible day in the future, he'll make everything new. There's a day when the world is done and eternity begins, a day when everyone loves Jesus and everyone loves each other, when God's truth is the only truth and when the love of God and others is the greatest love, when lies and deceptions no longer exist, when you can trust what people actually say to you, when everyone you know wants the absolute very best for you. No jealousy, no greed, no envy, no manipulation, no deception, no scams, no thieves, no rapists, no murderers, no molesters. All worship and love Jesus. He reigns, and finally, all is right in the world. No matter what the world throws at you and me, there are three words that instantly make everything right. He is risen. When you think of that truth, lift your eyes to a perfect heaven, thirst for righteousness, and let hope spring eternal. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this very real truth. Thank you that knowing this truth changes everything about us and our world. Forgive us, God, when we long so much for the future that we miss what you're doing here. So help us, God, to see the work you have for us. You've left us here and our hearts are still beating, so you have work for us to do. Help us to see what we're to see. But God, help us to live our lives focused on things above, thirsting for the day when your everything is right and hoping of that eternity. Help us, God, to know why he's risen and why it means so much to us and to have the reason for the hope that we have. We love you, we thank you, and we thank you most of all that you've risen. And it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.